Join me in following along as I read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Thus far, in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, as we get into this text, it's important to understand something of the gravity of the complaint that arises and comes to the apostles here in Acts chapter 6. It refers to these two two groups of of widows, the Hebrew widows and the Hellenist widows. This is likely a reference to their language. The Hebrew reference would have been Palestinian Jews who spoke primarily Aramaic. The Hellenist was a reference to those that lived outside of Palestine and spoke primarily Greek. And they all ended up here in Jerusalem because in those days it was considered virtuous to be buried there in Israel. And so a good number of Jews would spend their final days in Jerusalem, leaving behind a disproportionate number of widows. And think about this, if you would. Uh, Think about these Greek-speaking widows. I mean, they had been uh, lifted up. They had been moved, transplanted. They'd been moved from their homelands and brought here to Jerusalem simply to become widows. And of course, the widows were all a vulnerable group of people. But because of this transplanting, this Hellenist group was an especially vulnerable group of individuals. And so there was this daily distribution, and and this daily distribution corresponds with what we know to be this organized Jewish charity that would go on in local communities. Each community would have this, what we might refer to as a soup kitchen, uh, in which they would um, provide for transients and those with various needs, those who find themselves in destitute situations. They would also have this chest. And this chest, the the point of it was in order to care for more long-term needs of particular individuals in the community. And for them, for the Jews, this was essential to covenant loyalty. It was essential to, to care for these vulnerable folks because this was how they would live or maintain the covenant that God had made with them to belong to him. According to scripture, failure to to care for the poor actually bore a curse because it was considered to be covenant disloyalty. 
An example of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19. It says this, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. I love that, right? God, here he is. He says, look, if anyone fails to do justice and mercy to the vulnerable shall be cursed. And in response to that, the people are supposed to give this hearty amen. Right? We, we, we don't often say amen. You can, by the way, if you would like. But we don't often, and, and, and especially how often would we say amen to such a call and such a threat of cursing? And, and I have to be honest with myself, we had the, our time of confession already, right? I mean, how often do I probably need to confess that I'm not always ready to give such a hearty amen to this call of mercy and care because I realize what it really, really requires of me. That imposes something on my life and often I just don't like it. But this care is about covenant faithfulness. And the church of Jerusalem understood the gravity of this issue. They understood that the doing justice for the widows was shorthand for this covenant loyalty. And it wasn't just about old covenant loyalty, but it was new covenant loyalty as well. James says in chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, the very testimony about the gospel would be undermined by the neglect of such care and justice for these Hellenist women. And the reason why is the very core of the gospel is mercy. This merciful God The truth that Christ came to serve, to sacrifice, to give his life as a ransom for sinners like you and me. He came to take condemnation and to give righteousness, to take wrath and to give life, to take cursing and to give blessing. And the truth is, in such a kingdom that is governed by such a merciful king, the citizens Loyal citizens are those who reflect the mercy of that king. We had read for us this morning by Jill this this parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And you heard it. I mean, this lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and, And Jesus says, well, you already know this. It's love God and love your neighbor. And seeking to justify himself... Because loving your neighbors might be inconvenient. He, he's like, well, then who's my neighbor, right? Like, who is it that I really need to serve? What does this actually, actually look like? And so Jesus tells this story about this man who's going along his way, and, and he's, he's attacked by these robbers. They, they beat him, uh, they strip him, and the Scripture says they left him half dead, right? He left there to die, and we wonder, like, who's going to help him? And so this priest comes along, and we go, well, this guy, this guy is like, he makes his living doing religion, right? So surely he's going to help him. Well, he just skips over to the other side to try to avoid it. And we think, okay, well, now here comes this Levite. Surely this Levite, like, he's going to be into it. Like, 
Like he's, if there's somebody who defines old covenant people, like surely this Levite's gonna do it. He knows the law. He's gonna take care of them and he skips by him as well. And finally, we get this Samaritan. Somebody, the last person we would expect and we thought, well, this guy's, this guy's doomed. He's not gonna help him. But, the, but Jesus says he has compassion for this man. And he stops and he cares for him and, and, and in his affliction. Saves his life, really. And then Jesus asked this question to the lawyer, which of these three, the, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answered, and he knew the, the answer. He said, it was the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus says, you go and do likewise. You go. And you do likewise. Elsewhere, Jesus said, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Paul commanded, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the neglect of care undermines the testimony of the gospel. This is the same principle that's, that was in Romans chapter two that, that Bill preached about a number of weeks ago. And there he, Paul condemns or he, he calls out the hypocrisy of those who are testifying to the word of God and yet their lives that they live are, are lived inconsistent with what they are declaring. And there Paul concludes with these words from Isaiah that says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of your covenant disloyalty. You see, as those who belong to Christ because of the work of Christ, we are called then to live in light of this gospel, to imitate the very heart of Christ, the love of God, his compassion and his sacrifice, his mercy, his, his justice and his grace. Like this is covenant loyalty. And if we as a church are going to declare that we love God and that we love his word and we do, then we will love mercy. We will be a people who care for the vulnerable, who love mercy, who seek justice for people in their places of need. It is who we are. And all the people shall say, amen. The neglect of these widows was no small thing. And so this complaint, it comes to the apostles, and, and it's important to remember when we think about their response, what their mission was. Jesus gave them this mission. It's recorded by Luke in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And oftentimes in the book of Acts, when Luke refers to the word of God, it's actually shorthand for this missionary enterprise, this taking of the gospel into the world. And so they understood this task as being their work, but they also knew that to neglect justice due to these widows was a threat to the very mission that Christ 
had given to them. And it was a threat not simply because it would be a distraction to them, that they would get caught up doing something else, though that would be true, but it was a threat because the neglect itself is wholly inconsistent with their testimony about this merciful king, Jesus. And so they raised up leadership in the church to ensure that this care and that this mercy would be fulfilled so that the word of God would continue to increase. It would go out into Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They called a church meeting, probably sent out an email, and they selected among themselves these seven full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And they said that these people ought to be, be Christian. They ought to be mature and godly believers. They are to be people who could oversee this work so that the apostles would be free to do their specific, fulfill their specific work. And we're given the names here of the seven We know that two of them, Stephen and Philip, went on to serve significant teaching and evangelistic roles in the church in the next number of of chapters in the book of Acts. We read about that. The rest we really don't know much about. They they all um, are just listed here. They all have Greek names. Um, And here it might be tempting to to think, ah, look at the wisdom of this leadership. This is how we ought to do things, right? The problem are these Greek-speaking widows, and so we're going to raise up these Greek-speaking servants, these leaders, and it's going to take care of it, and it's, we're gonna, that's wise, and that's how we should do things. But in, 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 in the name of good Bible study, we should point out that, that oftentimes the Jews would, have, would take on two names during this time. One would be Hebrew and one would be Greek. So really the only thing that we can say that's profound is that these are seven people with seven Greek names, right? <laughs> that's it. Um, we'll just leave it there at that. Either way, they laid hands on these seven. They installed them into leadership in this important work. And, and presumably it went very well as a result, Right? We're told that, that disciples are coming into the, in, in great numbers. People are converting to the faith. And even some of the most resolute opponents of the gospel come to faith in Jesus. Luke summarizes it in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, that's our text. As we read a text like this, it can be easy to, and maybe not in the forefront of our minds, but kind of in a more subtle way, we can think of that this, this work of serving tables is somehow of lesser value than the real work of preaching and prayer. But we shouldn't make that mistake. The apostles determined that this was important work to do, this serving of tables, this care for these that were so vulnerable. So important that they called a church meeting, they selected leaders, and they ordained them to such leadership. And now some will say that these seven were the first deacons of the church. Others would say, well, this... These may not necessarily be deacons in the sense that we think about the office of the deacon in the church now, but maybe they were like forerunners to the deacons, like proto-deacons, if you will. What we probably is most agreeable, we can say this, 
that these were seven commissioned leaders that were to ensure that the church cared for those in need. And in due time, Christ established in the church what we now understand as the deacon to help us to always care for those in need. The word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos. It means servant, but it has this emphasis of a servant of the king and a service to other people. And in the broadest sense, each and every believer is actually called to be a a deacon, a, a servant, a servant in the likeness of our servant Savior, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This language of servant is diakonos language. Matthew 23, Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In Mark 9, Jesus said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, servant of all. In the broadest sense, each and every one of us is called to be a servant of Christ to people. Now, in a more narrow sense, deacon, the word, came to refer to this office of service in the church. And, and we see this in a number of places in the New Testament. For example, in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he addressed three groups of people. He addressed the saints, which would be the, the whole of the congregation. He addressed the overseers, which would be a reference to the elders and pastors. And he addressed the deacons. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, right, Paul addressed the qualifications for both the overseer and the deacon, saying, and in doing this, really what he's doing is he's establishing that just as the elder is placed in a place of leadership in the church, so was the deacon. Now, this plays itself out, for example, in, in our church. In the EPC, our denomination, we understand that God has ordained three offices to oversee the life and the ministry of the church. The first is that of the teaching elder, or what we might often just say pastor, right? And the primary work of the teaching elder is to expound the word of God. It's to lead the church in celebrating the sacraments. It is to oversee our worship and pastoral care, a Christian education, nurture, and the mission of the church. Here at Grace, we have three teaching elders, Bill, Chad, and myself. And then we have this second category of the ruling elder. What we would most often, we will just say elders, Right? That's, that's how we use the language. Sometimes you hear us as Presbyterians use the word session. Don't get confused. That just means like the whole of the elders together, the session. And really the primary role of the ruling elder is, is, can, be more seen, is can be seen really in the title itself. 
Um, It has more to do with overseeing than the teaching, though they're not exclusive to each other. Certainly, the teaching elder oversees, the ruling elder is to, to be part of the ministry of the Word. Well, the ruling elder's work is to represent the mind of Christ, to watch over the spiritual welfare of the church, including its prayer, discipleship, discipline, visitation, and they should become equipped in the ministry of the Word. Here at Grace, we have 12 elders, current Scott Rass, Todd Cook, Clay Phillips, Jason Lichty, Caleb Stiegel, Larry Birmingham, Michael Bolton, Darby Ritter, Mike Wietrich, Phil Oberzan, Larry Swinson, and Warren Wiebe. And then we have this third category, this third office, this deacon. And this is an office of service. It's an office of service. And it's an office of service that is a position of leadership in our church that serves under the authority of the session. And the deacon's role is first and foremost to lead the church in our ministry of compassion and service to those who are in any way experiencing distress. Now, we need to be clear at this point. That the ministry of the church belongs to the church. The ministry of the church belongs to the church. It is yours to do. It is ours to do and to fulfill. God has called each and every one of us to live lives of service. Remember, we're to say amen to this great call of mercy and justice and care. The deacons serve as our leaders in this, in this important work. They lead us and they call us and they draw us into it. And our job is to respond and to follow them in this important work. And we do so so that our testimony about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would ring true. That when we say that God is merciful and he's shown it at the cross of Christ, that our children would see it displayed in the way that we care for one another and go, "Ah, I see it. And it would ring true for one another and remind one another of the great work and the great mercy that God has given to us. And we live that out in the way that we care for one another. And it would ring true outside these doors for all who are watching and who are listening in. We're to follow them, to fulfill this great work of ministry. This morning, um, I gave a brief charge to the four that we ordained and installed And so what I wanted to do this morning is to share that with you. And one, you can think about it for them, but two, really, this is true for all of us. And so I would commend these three things to you, to serve God, to serve the church, and to serve the world. First, serve God as worshipers. You see, our primary calling is one who belongs to the Lord God Almighty. And for the deacons that were ordained this morning, that service didn't change that as their primary, uh, just of who they are, like, right? Like their chief end is still, and our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our faith is in Him. Our hope rests in Him. 
our love belongs to him. And one of the dangers that we have as Christians is that sometimes we can substitute our work for our worship. And we got to be careful not to do that. Right? Long before we were called to be deacons, to be servants, we are called to be disciples of Christ, to be those who sit at the feet of Jesus. Here I think of Mary and Martha, these two sisters. Right? And there was a time in which Jesus went to their home and, and, and Mary, Mary, she sat at the feet of Jesus and Martha got up and was in the kitchen busy doing. And, and sometimes we pit these two against each other and we ask questions like, are you more of a, a Mary or a Martha? Are you one who sits at the feet of Jesus or one who gets, gets up and is busy doing? But really, we ought to be both. We ought to be those who sit at the feet of Jesus. And as a result of that, rise to serve those in need. Our worship, it empowers our service. Second, we need to serve the church as servants in the likeness of King Jesus. The church is the very bride of Christ. We're to love her well, to serve her faithfully. And we think about how it is that we can do this, and, and, and maybe one of the ways that we can think about it is in this way, that, that ultimately our service is to Jesus. It's to him, it's before him, and it is for his pleasure. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and, or naked and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Oftentimes, preachers will remind one another to preach to an audience of one. I commend to you the same word, similar word, serve to an audience of one, Jesus. Because in doing so, you will serve the church like Christ serves his bride. And finally, serve the world as witnesses. See, the mission given to these apostles was to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the work of the seven in Acts chapter six was essential to their missionary task. And this continues to be our call today as the church of Jesus Christ. We are, we are serving an audience one, but as we serve an audience of one, there's a world around us who is watching and they are listening. Every service that we give, every word that we speak, Every service, every word 
It matters. It matters. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And part of this means that we, in our service to the church and to one another, we don't forsake being faithful to fulfill the callings that God has given to us already as individual believers, right? Continue, we continue to live faithfully with our families. We continue to be faithful in our vocations and to be faithful with our neighbors in our community. We are to be a light to the nations. Serve God, serve the church, serve the world. And we know that as we do that, we're reminded by it every time we receive the benediction and then we walk out those doors. And and our comfort when, when it's hard to serve Christ in this way is that Christ is with us. Christ is with you. You are a part of the bride. He gave his life for you. He cares for you. And you can live boldly in the mercy that you've received from him. Christ is with you. Perhaps... The words of Micah is a fitting place for us to end. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. He's told us what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? To do justice. To love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. This morning, the four took a number of ordination vows and installation vows. But I also asked the congregation to stand and to affirm vows as well. And what I want to do this morning is simply to read these vows as those who are united together in Christ Jesus. Uh, These vows were taken by those who were able to make it to the first service, and they were said on your behalf. I just thought it would be sweet for you to hear them. So the questions, there are four of them. First, are you, the members of this congregation, ready to receive Deborah Bradyhoft, Tim Bradyhoft, Carrie Heidi, and Caleb Weinhold as your deacons? To which we said yes. Do you promise to submit to Deborah, Tim, Carrie, and Caleb in matters of spiritual discipline and to receive with humility and love the word of truth? To which we said yes. Do you promise to support Deborah? 
Tim, Carrie, and Caleb with your prayers to give encouragement and assistance in every way as they seek to instruct you in the things of the Lord and to lead you in the building of the kingdom of God in this place to which we said yes. And do you commit yourselves to fulfill the terms of call you have extended and to make provision for Deborah's, Tim's, Carrie's, and Caleb's needs that the name of Christ might be glorified? To which we said yes. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with our God. Please pray with me. Father, we rest in the mercy that we have received in Christ Jesus. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died that we might have life and life to the full. We are those who are poor in spirit. (laughs) You have made us rich by your grace. And we give you thanks. And we know that our work of of justice and mercy and care for one another doesn't, doesn't attain secure righteousness because only This righteousness is given to us as a gift of grace. But we so long to be a people who reflect your care and your mercy. And so, Father, would you work in us in that way? Empower us by the truth of the gospel that we might live in light of it, that we might seek to be a people full of compassion and service and sacrifice and love and mercy, that we would desire to do good, that we would see those who are most vulnerable, see those in need, see those who are hurting, that we would reach out and enter in, that we would be so bold to do so, to give our lives just as you, Christ Jesus, gave yours. Father, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.